no matter what profession you're in or what undertaking you're doing, there's, 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 there's something to be said for just that persistence and dedication towards just continuing to improve over, over years. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, a life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. Like many runners, Sean Crichton began his career as a middle distance runner and moved longer and longer as his career went on. In the early 1990s, he was a 1,500 metre and one mile runner, breaking the four minute mile by just half a second. In the mid-1990s, he moved on to the 5,000 and 10,000 metres, and then to the marathon in the late 1990s and early 2000s. He competed in the Olympics in 1996 and 2000, and in the Commonwealth Games from 1990 all the way up to 2002. But what's interesting about Sean is that by 2006, he was back at the Commonwealth Games, now as a lawyer for the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Now in his late 40s, Sean's a partner at Mullis Legal, specialising in intellectual property. He's one of Australia's most versatile runners, but also one of those who's managed to make a second career for himself after his running prowess. Sean, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. Now, I want to ask you uh, about your, uh, your running career first, uh, because as a, as a fellow runner, I'm just in awe of some of these times. What was it like to break the four-minute mile? Well, the four-minute mile was one of those, it's, it's, it, as you know, it's, it's, they're talking about the two-hour marathon now. It's, it's one, of the, one of the classic goals that uh, runners set for themselves and which was once thought to be impossible. So uh, the form, I, I set the four-minute mile for the first time in Canberra, and apparently I'm still the only one to do it in, on, uh, on ACT soil. But it? it was... Um, so one of my training partners, I was, I was in good form, one of my training partners agreed to pace me through the half mile in, in two minutes and then uh, just see what I could do from there. So it was, I knew I was fit enough, was just, but um, you don't get as many opportunities to run the mile as you do in the 1500. So um, I'd run the metric mile a few times, but uh, hadn't done the actual one. So it was, yeah. it was a terrific thrill and a, an extra thrill to do it on home soil. Absolutely. Uh, and then you you moved on to the uh, the the 10k. You've uh, your 10k times 27:31, uh, uh, and then on to the marathon where you've run a, a 2:10 in uh, in Berlin in 1997. Uh, why is it that people tend to start short and and move long? I mean. We did have this uh, Eritrean guy, uh, Gurme uh, Gabrielesi, uh, uh, win the New York Marathon at the age of 20 last year. But that's the, the exception rather than the rule. People do tend to, to start short and move long during their careers. Yeah, I think it's probably because, uh, a couple of things, but certainly as you, it takes, to, to run a marathon, as you know, it takes years of doing a fair bit of aerobic 
training's a lot of volume, so a lot of time on your on, on your feet. At age 18 to 20, you just haven't got that uh, those years behind you, and, and you risk injuring yourself if you if you go and do that amount of mileage that soon. So you sort of build up several years of running. All of a sudden, you're capable of doing the, the longer work. For me, it was also just changing, uh, setting new goals as I went along. I, I'm um, probably of the vintage where what I remember watching Rob De Costello win the Commonwealth Games in 1982. So as a as a kid, yes. I wanted to be a marathon runner. It was just turned out that I ended up having more speed than I uh, than I realised. So the the middle distances beckoned before I went to the marathon. But my I guess my goal was always to go to the marathon. Right. And so, what did a normal training week look like for you at each of those distances? In the 1500, the three, 5k, and then the marathon. Yeah. My training week was very similar the whole time, so yeah. uh, which was uh, easy runs Monday, Friday, uh, long runs Wednesday, Sunday, hard sessions Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. What changed was the length that I did my Sunday and Wednesday long runs uh, and the type of hard training sessions. So if I was running the, the mile or the steeplechase, I'd do, I might go to the track and run 8 by 400 metres in 60 seconds or something like that. Uh, if I was training for a marathon, I might go out and do a, a 30 or 40 minute tempo run. So they're they very different sessions mm. depending on what you're training for to be specific for that event. But um, the, the general weekly structure remained the same for 20 years essentially. Wow. And just uh, one session a day typically or two sessions? Two, two, two a day. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, in fact, probably twice a day, every day for about 20 years. Wow. <laughs> and uh, what sort of mileage per week were you uh, clocking up across those uh, across that period? Uh, I was always fairly high high volume. I, I seem to respond well to aerobic work. I think it comes back to having reasonably good natural speed. So I, was, I guess you can work on your strengths or work on your weaknesses. So I was working on my weaknesses more so, uh, and I responded well to the, to the volume. So 1,500 metre and steeplechase training, I was doing... 140 to 160Ks a week, marathon training 200 to 220 a week, sort of, but uh, week in, week out. And in terms of time, that's what, 12 hours a week or yeah, so? Yeah, 12 to 15, and then by the yeah. time, I mean, when you're doing that sort of work, you and of course the shorter stuff you're doing more intensity as well, then yes. you have your physio and your massage and a, a few speed drills and um, those sorts of things. So it probably work, it ends up being about 20 hours a week. That's getting uh, tough to hold down a full-time job, I would imagine, at that stage. It is, That's yeah. So, so I, was, I was always doing part-time work, part-time study and running, so I found that was a, that was a good blend. I, didn't, uh, I, I went for six months only where I ran full-time, and uh, yeah. it, I found that my morning run, rather than being at 7 o'clock, I'd have a cup of coffee and read the paper first, and it became 8 o'clock. <laughs> then, it was, then it was 10 o'clock, and it was time to get a job when it was sneaking out to 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it is interesting to the contrast with uh, swimmers who you know don't seem just ha- just are able to put so much more time into uh, into their bodies, and so you know those those elite swimmers seem to be clocking up you know, sometimes six hours a day. Yeah, that's right. Uh, of course, swimming being a non-weight bearing sport, running being a, a weight bearing sport, that's where I was pleased to be a runner, not a swimmer or a cyclist, because yes. it was only so many hours you could do before your body would break down. Whereas a, a swimmer or a cyclist, if you wanted to, you could go all day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you suffer many injuries over the course of that uh, that career? Not really. Uh, so I, I ran primarily steeplechase in the early 1990s and my hips essentially jammed up and that's why I uh, went on to 5 and 10,000 metres. So, so 1994 Commonwealth, so I ran the steeplechase. 94 Commonwealth, so I was one of the favourites and my hips jammed completely up so I could barely go over the barriers and that's when I, I had my last steeplechase. So 
except that I could run on the flat. If I was purely a steeplechase runner, my career would have ended in 94. So uh, yeah. luckily I could also uh, run well on the flat. And so it ended up just being turned into an, a uh, setting challenges at a new distance. Did you find when you were doing those big mileages, and particularly when you're over 200 kilometres a week as a, as a marathon runner, that you still enjoyed running? I did, yeah. But uh, as, as a marathon runner yourself, you know, sort of, you, I, I find the last 10 weeks or so before a major marathon or a major uh, running goal, that's when you really get focused and, and, and knuckle down. I'd always get to about the seven or eight week mark and think, Oh, just another week or so until I can uh, enjoy the ease down into a taper. So, yes. the in the middle of the right in the middle of the uh, the heavy training, it's it's a grind and it's tough, but you're still enjoying it and still it's 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 uh, it's all part of the process. Did you have the one coach over that period? Had uh, from 1990 until 2002, or until I retired in 2004. So um, had the same coach, Pat Clahessy, throughout that whole time. Uh, and uh, uh, leading into then, so um, in my late teens, um, and before I came to Canberra, a guy called Peter Larosignon, who was a an exercise physiologist. So just just the two coaches. Yeah. Uh, and what did you, what what did they give you? Uh, it, was it uh, largely about the practicalities in terms of what you're doing day to day, or was there also a kind of mentoring growth role that uh, that, that they were playing? Yeah. Uh, both, de- definitely mentoring and growth, but in a very different way. I was I was fortunate to have very uh, different um, style coaches. So uh, Peter was a PhD exercise physiology, and at the uh, I, I studied human movement uh, in in my nineteen to, to twenty two year old. So I was I was really into learning about the the the, uh, the physiological effects of training, and Peter was able to to really explain that in great detail. Mm. You know, that you're doing this session because this is the physiological effect it'll have. Whereas, although Peter ran a bit, he didn't have that that international experience and, I guess, the the art of coaching. So, uh, Pat Clohessy, just the opposite. If you asked him to explain any part of the science of coaching, he'd uh, he wouldn't even have an attempt at it. So, uh, but incredible. Uh, if you could be an artist as a coach, he was uh, he was absolute. Uh, his his paintings have been all the galleries. He was, he was incredible in knowing what to do and when to do it, and 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 just had that. Um, Mentoring role as as a as not only as a runner but also as a person, but also just uh, a great at developing athletes and people. Can you give me an example of that? Uh, one of the things I think that the Pat was terrific at was he'd encourage you to do things outside of outside of running, but he was and he was very much about uh, being uh, having a holistic lifestyle not just putting all your eggs in the one basket even so far as um, if it was an Olympic year he'd say oh yeah still do plenty of other races because it's all, it almost it helps you go well in the Olympics because it takes the pressure off because if, if all your eggs are in the one basket it's, mm. a, it, it's a higher risk so um, but, but Pat was certainly uh, would be encouraging across all facets of life and uh, all, encourage you to do get more strings to your bow. Did you feel the stress uh, acutely as you moved, as you went to those starting lines? I mean, to be on an Olympic starting line must be a huge amount of uh, emotional pressure on you. Yeah, I think the only real regrets I have looking back, uh, the, the only two championships that I went to that I got sick uh, were the two Olympics I went to. And at the time, I thought it was bad luck, but I actually think it was just putting too much. It was the one I really, really mm. wanted to do well at. 
Uh, so I think I just put too much pressure on myself, and as a and, and you're so finely tuned, you're so uh, you know so lean, and 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 uh, you're more susceptible to get to getting injured. Uh, Ninety six, it might have been the pressure. Two thousand, it might have just there was a, a, a flu went around the training camp, and uh, and I got it. So whether that right. was that, that might have been just bad luck, but I certainly think ninety six, I was just putting so much pressure on myself. Okay, this is the Olympics. This is the big one, rather than just saying, okay, well, this this is an important race, but taking the pressure off. So yes. I think that's the uh, that's the one thing. If I'd had my time again, I would have would have done differently. Is is not place so much focus on the Olympics and uh, and let the, let the result come as a result of that. Yeah, a bit like uh, walking down the aisle. It must have been one of, the, one of those things where you sort of think that this is this is a unique opportunity, and I want to enjoy it as I'm, uh, as yeah, I'm exactly. doing it as well. Exactly. Uh, do you enjoy the closing stages of a of a marathon? Uh, I mean, mate of mine, uh, Justin Wolfers, talks about the sort of sense of euphoria that he gets in the last couple of kilometres. He's uh, uh, he always listens to music, and he's got a particular song that he puts on in the last last couple of kilometres. He's finishing up. Uh, do you feel that about the end, or is it is the end just a grinding? I want this to be over. When I was running competitively. Uh, I was, I think, I probably almost always bit off a little bit much more than I could chew. So I, I, ran, I ran two ten, but I always wanted to run two eight. So I would always go out at two eight pace. So the last couple of k's, by definition of never running two eight, was always a really tough grind of just sort of trying to hang on and get to the finish line. Yes, I did two marathons in nineteen last year, so in two thousand sixteen. Both of which my quickest K was my last K, but that was probably because I was uh, I sort of went out way too conservative relative to fitness, and and that was a terrific experience running on strongly for the last few kilometres. But not certainly something I, I'm not someone who runs with music, so I like to. But the the, the marathons are a terrific, as you know, a terrific event for the and you go through different patches the whole way, and I guess it's a real sense of personal accomplishment to mm. to be able to uh, work hard towards it over a period of time and, and and achieve those goals you set for yourself. Yes, well, I mean, watching uh, Indigenous Marathon Project runner John Leha finish the uh, 2015 New York Marathon at, uh, I think he was still then over 100 kilograms. Yes. Uh, and a huge personal effort to, uh, to to train up to get through get through that race. Yeah. And just the elation on John's face as he carries the uh, the Aboriginal flag over the over the finishing line yeah. is something extraordinary. That's brilliant. I think that's one of the great things about um, uh, sporting activities or recreational activities. You can your goals are very, very personal. So whether it's mm. an elite level or just to finish, that's you can you can really make it uh, uh, set a personal goal. And and with an aerobic type event, you do generally if you do the work, you get the you do you can continue to improve, and that's very satisfying no matter what your level is. Now we're sort of talking about your running career as though it's got this smooth arc about it, but uh, my recollection is there's uh, it's it's a bit jumpier than that, right? It is. You, that's you make right. the transition to law, and you essentially uh, do you stop running entirely, or do you, do you largely largely cut it off? Uh, so so I re- in uh, I stopped in two thousand and four when I realised it was unlikely I was going to be making the the Olympic team, um, and then I virtually went cold turkey. Mm. Uh, but then I moved to, Com- to Melbourne to work on the Commonwealth Games in, in, on the legal team. A um, few athletes in Melbourne asked me to start coaching them, which I did, and so I was still fit enough that I'd 
jump in and run training sessions with them. Uh, then I, uh, one of my mates had an IP practice in Canberra, so when the Commonwealth Games were over, I, uh, he twisted my arm to come back to Canberra. He's now since moved back to Melbourne, funnily enough. Um, <laughs> but um, so I ca- when I came up to Canberra and started really focusing on law, I, I stopped doing the coaching because the athletes were in, were in Melbourne and uh, I virtually stopped running. So I was, I, I guess, got less fit and put more weight on every year for about six or seven years in a row. And then um, our, about seven years ago, my wife's pushing our, uh, our daughter in a pram on a Saturday morning and I'm, I'm running and I realised she could, she could pull away from me going up a hill. I was like, this is really not good, so I, so that I, I need to get back into it. And so I actually challenged her to a race over the Canberra Times that year, thinking, OK, well, she'll run about 40.30, so I've got... And I clearly can't run that right now. So I ran 40.08 and just uh, flat to the boards, though. And so... Wow. Uh, um, so, but in those last seven years, um, I've now thought I've pulled pulled back about a minute a year. So I was thirty three um, high this year. So that was about, about seven minutes in seven years. Yeah, yeah. So this, sorry, this is thirty three minutes for ten kilometres. That's right. That's, that's right. not bad for a forty nine year old. So, so yeah. So it was. Uh, it's but well, it wasn't until about two years ago that I really started to. Do a bit more harder training, and so the uh, I realised that the annual Canberra Times Fun Run wasn't enough of a uh, a goal to get me out, and uh, particularly over winter. So I needed to do a bit more. So that's where I decided um, the six foot track I'd heard about, which is a a, a really tough forty five k trail race. So I thought the only way you can do that and get through without it being a world of world of hurt is actually get out and do a fair bit of running. So that's I've done the last two, and I'll do that again in March. So. That was really just to, to break the bad habits that had uh, snuck in of, of not running much and coming home and having a, a beer or a glass of wine rather than going for a run. Yeah, and you were telling me earlier that you, uh, you'd run up a hill or two yesterday. That's right, yeah. So the training for a six-foot track is uh, we'd, uh, mate and I normally do knock off Mount Ainsley, then Mount Majura, then Black Mountain. So it turns out to be um, about a... Th- well, yesterday was 37 and a half k, uh, 38.5k, so it's a, uh, that's a long, tough morning. And, and by a neat coincidence, 38.5k on about a 35-degree day. Today, that's so. right, exactly. <laughs> um, what's it like running as a, as a middle-aged person rather than as a, as a young elite athlete? What do, you, what do you do differently, particularly what's different mentally to, uh, to, to, to being a competitive runner now? Yeah, well, the, the mentally, um, when, I was, when I was a competitive athlete, I'd be always thinking about what my what my next race was going to be and you'd be sort of focusing about that and thinking about that when you're training. When I started back doing a bit of running and I, I guess I was focusing primarily on um, practising law, I'd often go out and go for a run and I'd be thinking about a, a contract I was drafting or a matter mm. I was working on and um, and that was that was good but now I've now gone away from that and funnily enough, if you've got, if you've got a legal problem you're thinking about it, it'll come to you anyway. I now go out and just try and relax. Mm. I think that's that's this is just some me time to um, physically get fit, but also physically, emotionally, and, and, and spiritually. I guess go out and enjoy a run through the bush. And uh, uh, often, if it's a run with my mate, just uh, or a couple of mates have a chat. And if if it's just by myself, it's almost like a lot of people go to yoga or meditate. But that's that's the time where I just have a bit of bit of downtime and quiet time. And beforehand, as a competitive athlete, it wouldn't have been downtime. It would have been the main, the, the was, main activity. Right? That's right, exactly. Yeah. It's business. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, you mentioned before you work as a coach in, in Melbourne. Do you do much of that coaching now? Uh, I sometimes have people ask me if I'll, if I'll coach them. I say, well, I'm very happy to write your program and I'm very happy to chat to you about um, about running but realistically I don't have the time to put into yes. to coach so I can't I can't be up at the track holding stopwatch for you so uh, yes. so I don't have anyone who I formally coach anymore but I've got plenty of people who I chat to regularly and I guess mentor more than anything including a couple of coaches what's your how would you characterize your coaching style um, my coaching style is very much um, influenced by uh, the coach I had from 1990 onwards Pat Clohessy who was very much um, do a little bit less rather than a little bit more, so always be slightly underdone and fresh and eager rather than risking um, overdoing it and becoming injured or sick or or burnt out. Uh, And through that, you'll gradually improve week in, week out, month in, month out, and and that's how you'll improve rather than doing any super sessions. Um, But from a training philosophy, it's very simple. Long days go along. Easy days go easy and hard days go hard. Now, it, might sound, <laughs> it, might sound, it might sound very basic, but I, I find the biggest mistake a lot of runners make is they, they go too hard on their recovery days. And so recovery day is not to get fitter. It's to actually absorb the, the training load you've done on your hard days or your long runs. Does any of that go into your management style as a as a lawyer, or how you work yourself as a lawyer? Do you have Do you think consciously about hard days and uh, and easy days in your work life? Uh, I think in the last couple of years, I've I've taken more time out uh, on weekends and, and things like that to to recharge the batteries because I think in the say seven years or so ago where I wasn't doing much running and the weight was piling on and it was and it was probably I'd only just taken I'd bought a a law firm and so I just that was a new stress and um, I was taking all that on without having having an out, outlet and I think that's the risk of, of, of burning out so I'm now realizing you've got to get that balance for the, the longevity and that's the same in running if you can you can go hard for, seven, for for a couple of years but those who do burn out after a couple of years as opposed to those people like Rob DeCostello and Steve Monaghetti had had long successful careers mm. But they didn't smash themselves in training. They did. They trained consistently hard over a long period of time. But there were hard days and easy days. Yeah. But in 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 law, as you know, you can't pick and choose which days are going to be easy and which ones are going to be hard. Just because it's uh, you, you got to go with the workflow. What is uh, being a competitive athlete? How how are you a different lawyer from having been a competitive athlete? Oh, I think the um, you know that there's times when you've really got to focus more intently than than otherwise uh, you learn that you can um, getting stressed and 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 too focused on something doesn't necessarily provide the answers sometimes by staying by staying calm and uh, and, and rational is 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 a better way to go um, but I think there's there's a dedication to no matter what whether whether you're a, what it, what it, no matter what profession you're in or what undertaking you're doing there's 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 something to be said for just that persistence and dedication towards just continuing to improve over over years. So I think I like to think that's something which is is carried over between between an athlete and a lawyer is just continually striving to improve yourself. Do you feel you, you you're a better lawyer 
uh, now than you were 12 months ago? Do you still feel that sort of steady improvement path in your professional life? No, I think so, yes. Yeah, and, and, and as with running um, or anything you do, the first few years you're going to be improving at a greater knot just because mm. you've got more room for improvement. But um, yeah, I, I, I like to think in anything you do, there's, there's always room just to continue to improve a little bit more. Probably for me as a lawyer, it's, it's also expanding the, um, your skill sets in, um, you know, you might learn a lot about one area, but then you, you start to delve a little bit more into another area and learn a lot more about that. So you, you can never stop learning. Absolutely. But I think too many of us, and I certainly find this in, in my own life, uh, there's that tendency to say, well, I've gotten good enough at this activity and I'll, I'll just continue to, to, to work at this level. Yes. Uh, that, uh, that willingness to constantly challenge yourself to uh, do a better job within your professional life, I think, is a, is a real uh, a tough one both... As, a, as an individual, but also if you're managing other people. To yes, that's to, right. To inculcate that. Yeah, and I think that's one of managing other people. I guess you, at the time you, you help grow yourself when you're helping develop other people because mm. you, you're then having to explain something and you, you might realise, well, maybe I didn't understand that as well as I, I thought I did. So you then that challenges you to, to make sure that you are up to speed with all the current developments. Yes. Are there aspects of your... Uh, time being coached or as a coach that inform the way in which you work as a as a manager in a legal practice. Oh, I think I, I like to um, yeah, and this, again this goes back to the influence of Pat Clohessy is is in, is trying to really just be encouraging and and, and nurturing and and uh, I think law's got a bad reputation for for people who are the the, the bosses who are dictatorial and say this is absolutely how how it must be done, whereas I think the coaching and, uh, and the athletic background um, is more trying to be a, a nurturing and developing um, type role rather than uh, the dictatorial type role. Mm. Well, let me uh, wrap up on, uh, on a couple of uh, common questions that I ask all of the podcast yes. interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self, Sean? Uh, to my teenage self, I'd say... Uh, Try and identify something that you've got a real passion for and work very hard towards that, particularly if it's only got a finite time. I mean, uh, fortunately, that's something that ultimately did happen with me, but it's it's not it wasn't necessarily a given. I could have easily have, have gone off uh, the path and not followed the running running path. So uh, I'm pleased I ultimately did that, but that would be my advice: is uh, is identify what your passion is and work work hard to uh, maximise your potential at it. Was there a? You, do you think there's a risk that you might have dispersed your uh, your athletic energies across a range of different endeavours? Yeah, well, uh, I guess going back to the, I guess telling, asking what you'd say to your, your teenage self is is identifying what interests you and really mm. follow that and 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 steer away from things that don't. I my first year out of school, I was a trainee accountant and. Um, it would have been easy just to, in country New South Wales, do that for the next thirty years. But I yeah. realised I don't want to do this for the next thirty years. Yeah. So it was yeah. it was it was finding out what I really want to do. And and for me, I guess that was when the penny dropped. Actually, I love running, and uh, I can, I'll do that with as much energy and effort as I can. But um, but at the same time, try and develop another. That won't last forever. So have something to fall back on. Absolutely. Yeah. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? From the running, in a running perspective, I was probably naively believed that everyone I competed against at the highest level were drug free. Now I'm, I mm. think, uh, um, 
the EPA, which was I, th I thought came in more towards when I'd retired, I think the empirical evidence shows that it came in in the mid '90s. So there was there was clearly guys I was running against who were cheating. So I don't know who they are. And I mm. couldn't point the finger, but um, and I guess that saddens me a bit too because you think well, partly you're robbed and um, and 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 that people were doing things that um, uh, they shouldn't have been in the sport. Yes, and it's interesting because we, at least my stereotype is that uh, swimming and running have been much cleaner than, say, cycling and weightlifting. Yes, over exactly, the years. exactly. Uh, but uh, EPO seems to have the same sort of effect for distance runners that it has for cyclists. That's right. That's the best I've read. Yeah, and um, I think Steve Monaghetti is of the same view. He, up until very recently, and I was just chatting to him about this about two years ago, he, he came third in the world. Uh, marathon championships in 1997 and he was walking out to the medal ceremony and one of the, the very well-known sports managers from Europe um, said to him congratulations you are the true champion today the two, two Spaniards came first and second and and you know they they never tested positive but Spain seemed to be have a they had a big peak if you look at it mathematically in, yeah. in the in the in the mid to late 1990s, um, and until the EPA tests came out, they had a big peak in uh, in performances of their distance runners, which is now gone again, and it wasn't around in the early mm, 90s. Mm. And so the um, the the, Marath the the Spaniards came one and two, and Monaco came third in uh, in the Athens World Championships. And so the manager said to uh, who, who had no relationship with Monaco said, "Oh, yes. congratulations, you were the true champion today." And and Monaco didn't know what he meant. Yes. And, and it's only years later he's now thought, well, maybe the two Spaniards actually were taking something and I think they probably were so, yeah but uh, and you don't get those times back again so I, I certainly so distance running certainly wasn't like cycling so it's I, I personally couldn't say that I know someone who was on EPO but I think we definitely there was probably a dozen people but that's that's a that's enough when in 1996 I was ranked 11th in the world so yes. I, don't, I don't know how many of those 10 who are ahead of me were, were taking things yes might have been none but I, I think I'd say it's pro it was probably half a dozen. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's starting to abate now? I think it is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I like to. Th I like to think it is. Um, but and and again, mathematically, if you look at it, the um, the times that were being run in the mid to late nineteen nineties um, are quicker than what they are now. Um, almost twenty years later. Mm. So you'd say, on an, it'd say that if you averaged out the top twenty times in the world. So that indicates to me that, that people were taking the drugs in the late 90s and they aren't anymore. Yes. And the, as the testing regimes have ramped up, you haven't seen the sort of high-profile uh, positive tests in, That's the, right. in distance running that you've that, seen in cycling. That's uh, right. So. That's right. And I think one of the, one of the positives is now that they can go back and... Uh, retrospectively test someone. I think that's yes. uh, that that makes people a you're more likely to get caught, and b you might get caught later. So I think that's that's a real positive for part want of a better word. Yeah, the prospect of a fall from grace. Exactly, is, uh, is, a, is a useful way of focusing young, young people's <laughs> minds. Exactly. When are you most happy? Um, well, I think generally, like a lot of us, spending time with with family and, uh, and and close friends. You know, particularly this this time of year, it's it's. Uh, Time at the beach with the family is fantastic. Um, uh, personally, I, lo I love, I still love going out and uh, and running through the through the hills and through the forest with uh, with a mate or two and just enjoying that experience. And I still get that euphoric feeling at the uh, it's often at the end of a long run or a hard training session. Uh, professionally, I, I I really enjoy working with um, with 
with businesses or companies that are just starting out and helping them uh, take that next step and uh, and then see them see them grow and succeed. Hmm. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? It is actually running. I know we've talked a lot about running, but uh, the the unhealthiest, for want of a better word, that I I was 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 seven or eight years ago when I wasn't running at all. Um, I was I'd come home from work and drink too much wine, and uh, I was getting putting weight on. And when I started running again, but not just going for the odd jog, actually doing quite a bit of running again, I found all of a sudden. You just feel so much better within yourself. You got you are. Uh, I know people write about it, but I had more energy and I had greater focus and and all of those things. So that was so running keeps me physically, spiritually, and and, and mentally uh, better off than if I wasn't. Yes, I never thought this was true until I saw a fascinating randomised trial done on a group of hardcore amateur marathon runners where they randomly got half of them to cease exercising for a fortnight yes. and then they gave them IQ tests on a, day, a daily basis wow. and you actually saw a drop off in the IQ scores of those who were forbidden from from exercising Wow! Uh, which did seem to suggest that it's, it's, it's not just a, a, a convenient line we tell ourselves in order to just, justify getting out for a run there's a, a bit of science behind it That's right, in winter I often, a bit, bit tough this time of year, I'll often go for a lunchtime run because I end, I end up finding I'm very productive the afternoon if I run at lunchtime. So, mm, yeah. mm. Uh, whereas you don't get the same after work run, you don't get that um, unless you're doing some work later at night. You don't get that benefit. And the mornings, not being a morning person, getting up and doing an early morning run, I'm just, makes me a bit tired for the day. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, particularly if you're doing the long run. First particularly if you're morning. doing the long run. That's yeah. right. Um, do you have any guilty pleasures? Certainly. Uh, Wine would be red wine. I love my red wine and uh, probably have too much of it. And uh, I love chocolate, particularly right. with the red wine. So that goes back to why you don't do the morning runs. Exactly, often, exactly. <laughs> um, and which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, again, Pat Clohessy, who was my coach throughout the, 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 the 90s and early 2000s, he, uh, he shaped my view and, uh, I guess, shaped my life. And, and I guess... As far as as the ethics go, he was someone who is, or, and still is, uh, someone who tries to find the best in people and and really tries to encourage people to to do their best. And um, he likes to he, he, he sort of the old cliche: if you haven't got anything good to say about a person, don't say don't say anything. So he Pat lives like that, and he's mm. someone Pat, someone who would much rather coach um, just a plotter who's. Who's, who's enthusiastic and, and dedicates themselves to it than a superstar who's got no work ethic. So and I think, uh, you know, I think that's a good approach and I've certainly, Pat's influence has rubbed off very strongly on me. That's great. Sean Crichton, thanks very much for taking the time to speak on the Good Life podcast today. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know on Facebook, Twitter, or your favourite social media app. I'll be back next week with a new guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.